Kvodorov, beloved friends. Uh, let me thank you, Rabbi Kaplan and Rabbanit Frieda and Jeffrey Davison, chairman of the board, and the Hampstead Garden Suburb community for hosting this event and for um, being one of the great communities of British Jewry. My thanks to Michael and Danielle Gross and their family for sponsoring the Machsa, to the amazing publishing team of Matthew Miller and his team at Corrin for producing such a uh, beautiful, beautiful piece of, uh, it, 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 the aesthetics of this is uh, Hidur Mitzvah. And lastly, and surely, uh, Acharon Chaviv, Diane Ivan Binstock for singular, single-handedly saving Minhaganglia. And uh, we thank you for, we've now done all five Machzarim when we feel uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure, Diane Binstock, to work with you. And to all of you, um, let me uh, wish all of you, in case I don't have the chance uh, later, to wish you all a year of good and blessing and peace. Amen. Uh, friends, you may feel it's a little odd, since we're just coming up to Rosh Hashanah, that we should be talking about Sukkot. Um, I, I suffer permanently from jet lag because I spent a whole year of it being Sukkot. I do covenant a conversation six weeks in advance. I spend a year of it being Sukkot the whole year, and a year of being at Shavuos. But I hope that you will uh, find that... Um, the introduction, at any rate, to the Machsar is, uh, gives you some new insights into the festival. And um, let me simply say this, that one of the really, really uh, rewarding facts about Sukkot is that it leads you, Rabbi Kaplan, to realize that the English weather is Hashem's Aliyah campaign. <laughs> Friends, Sukkot, I want to share with you a journey, a long journey, actually, but uh, not, a, not a difficult one, but a really, really revelatory one as to the nature of Sukkot. And I hope you'll be able to, I'm, I'm going to go at speed. You see, we have a lot of Makorot, but I hope we'll see something really quite new. And let me share, therefore, with you the following preparatory questions. Number one, what actually is Sukkot? Right? There is only one point in the whole of the Torah, you'll see it there in source one, which actually tells you what Sukkot is all about. Right? The Sukkot Teshvu, can you see it? Shivat Yamim, live in a Sukkot for seven days, call Ezrach by Yisrael Yeshvu Sukkot. Everyone born in Israel must sit in a Sukkot, Laman Yedu Dorotechem, so that your generations shall know, keep a Sukkot or Shavti at Bnei Yisrael, that I made the Israelites live in Sukkot, Botziot Ameretz Mitzrayim, when I took them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Now tell me, what is a Sukkah? What does it symbolize? And on this, we know a famous uh, rabbinic disagreement. You will find it in two versions in sources two and three. I'll just read you the more famous one from the Babylonian Talmud, Ditanya. The Sukkot represent 
the clouds of glory that protected the Israelites for 40 years as they wandered through the wilderness, Divrei Rabbi Eliezer. That is the view of Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Akiva Omer, Rabbi Akiva says, Sukkot mamash asulahem. Actually, a sukkah is a sukkah is a sukkah. It's just a, literally a sukkah. That's what the Israelites lived in, and that's what it symbolizes. If you look at source 3, you'll find the same disagreement, but muchlevet ashita, it's Rabbi Eliezer who says sukkot mamash, and Rabbi Akiva who says there were clouds of glory. Now, let me ask you a simple question. According to Rabbi Akiva, what was the miracle of sukkot? They lived in a shed, okay? That's what Bedouin do today. We celebrate a miracle on Pesach. God took us out of Egypt from slavery to freedom. We celebrate a miracle on Shavuos. For the only time in history, God revealed himself to an entire people. What is the miracle of a garden shed unless it's me putting it up? <laughs> so according to Rabbi Akiva, who said, Sukkot is Sukkot, Mamash, just a Sukkah, what are we celebrating? That is a serious question. According to Rabbi Eliezer, who says that a sukkah represents the clouds of glory, if the sukkah really did represent the clouds of glory, what should it have said in the book, in the verse? He be'anan, in a cloud I led the Israelites through Egypt. That's what it says all the way through. Can you see source 4? etc., etc., uh, I will appear in a cloud above the mercy seat. Or um, uh, source 5, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of God filled the Mishkan. When the Torah wants to refer to a cloud, it refers to a cloud. Why call a cloud a sukkah? Nowhere in the whole of Torah, in the whole of Tanakh, is a cloud called a sukkah. So we have a question according to Rabbi Akiva. We have a question according to Rabbi Eliezer. Okay? Number one. Number two. Tell me something. Where in the Torah does it say the Israelites lived in Sukkot for 40 years in the wilderness? The answer, nowhere except here. Actually, did they live in Sukkot? What did they live in? They lived in tents. Uh, you remember, I mean, the most famous of them all, so six. There's Bilam looking out over the camp. They lived in tents. They didn't live in sukkahs. A tent doesn't have a roof. You can't fulfill Sukkot by living in a tent. Okay? So how come? If it's to remind us of the Israelites in the wilderness, it tells us that they lived in Sukkot, and they never, nowhere else does it say they lived in Sukkot. Nowhere in the whole of Tanakh. Okay? Question number two. Question number three. Tell me, what is the other name for Sukkot? What do we call it? Zman Simchatim. The festival of our joy. And the reason we call it the festival of our joy is there. In 7 and 8, you'll see I put them in boldface and underlined, right? It says three times. How many times is Simcha mentioned in the Torah in connection with Pesach? Anyone know? Zero. How many times is Simcha mentioned in connection with Shavuos? One. How many times is it mentioned in connection with Sukkot? Three times. Can you see? So 7, Usmachtem lifnei Hashem elokechem. That's in Parshish Emma. And in uh, Dvarim it says, Vesamachta b'chagecha, 
and Vayita Aksamach. That is all about Sukkot. Sukkot is called Zman Simchatenu because Simcha is mentioned three times in relation to Sukkot, once in relation to Shavuos, no times in relation to Pesach. Tell me, if you were to ask and you didn't know any of this, which is the most joyous of the festivals, which would you have chosen? What? Well, Pesach, you get liberated from slavery to freedom. On that, you can rejoice. Allow, allow me to give you full permission to rejoice. I would have chosen Pesach. Or God comes down from heaven and speaks to you personally. On that, I would rejoice. God forces you to live 40 years in a shed without a proper roof. On that, you rejoice. Are you with me? Question three. Why call it Zaman Simchatenu? Okay, now, that's three questions. Question four. If you were to choose a book out of all the Torah to read on Sukkot, which would you choose? Or maybe, let me put it the other way around, which is the one you wouldn't choose? <laughs> Kohelet, right? It's the most miserable book in the whole of Tanakh. Well, how does it begin? There it is, source 9. Havel Havalim, Amar Kohelet, Havel Havalim, Hakol Havel. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. It's meaningless, Right? That cheer you up? Uh, are you with me? Of all the books in the Torah, you shouldn't choose. It's Kohelet. Okay? And what do we choose? Kohelet. That's question number four. Now, I am going to ask you question number five. And question number five will turn out to be the key that unlocks a whole series of extraordinary discoveries. Who wrote Kohelet? Shlomo Melech, right? Okay, let's have a look. Um, can you see source 12? The opening line of Kohelet, right? Divrei Kohelet, Ben David, Melech Birushalayim. Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who is that? It's Solomon. Only Solomon fits that description. Only Solomon was the son of David who ruled. Only Solomon was the one who accumulated all that wealth described. I built houses and gardens and made a fortune in real estate and all the rest of it. I was wiser than anyone else. That's Solomon, right? Does the word Solomon appear in Kohelet? No. Right. Now, let me ask you, what other books did Solomon write, according to tradition? What? Shiachirim and Mishle. Okay. Does it mention King Solomon in Shiachirim and Mishle? Have a look. In uh, Source 10, the opening line of Mishle. Mishle, Mishle, Shlomo, Ben David, Melech Israel. Doesn't leave you in much doubt. In case you forgot it by the time you get through, it repeats it five times in Mishle. Kohelet, have a Shirim, have a look in source 10, 12, uh, sorry, source 11. Shirashirim, Tsena Ureena Benot Zion, Bamelach Shlomo, Batara Sheitra Loimo, Biom Chatuna, Tobiom Simchat Libo. Come out, daughters of Jerusalem, and look at King Solomon with a crown which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding and the day of his rejoicing. On Mishle, it tells you King Solomon. Uh, in Shira Shirim, it tells you King Solomon. Does the word Solomon appear in Kohelet? No. 
Now this is peculiar. We all know it's the words of Solomon. Whether Solomon wrote it or somebody else wrote it and attributed it to him or somebody else wrote it and, and, and about him, whatever it was, whether it was a biography, an autobiography, a ghosted autobiography, doesn't matter. We know it means Shlomo. Why call it Koalas? A word that appears nowhere else in the whole of Tanakh. Are you with me? Why? Now this can only be one thing. If my way of reading Tanakh in general makes sense, I have argued, for instance, in my book, Not in God's Name, that very often in Torah and Tanakh, you will find beneath the surface meaning a concealed counter-narrative. There is a story beneath the story. But we always find a clue somewhere to tell us that there's more here than meets the eye. And this word, Kohelet, is such a clue. And what clue is it giving? Well, I'll tell you, a word very similar to Kohelet appears in the Torah. Near the end, anyone know where? There's a mitzvah, which is almost the same word. The mitzvah is called hakhel. It's the same word, kahal, right? Means a community, kihilah. The 612th command is hakhel. 612 out of 613. Tell me something. You, you, there it is, command in source 13. Have you got it? When did hakhel take place? Sukkot, right? It says in source 13, And Moses commanded them, saying, On Sukkot, at the end of a Shemitah year, the king is to assemble everyone in Jerusalem and teach Torah to them. That is incidentally what Kohelis does. He is makil, right at the end, he taught people Torah and Many of the commentators say that's why it was called Kohelas, because this is what he taught at Hakel. But here is a connection between Kohelet and Sukkot. Second question, what is Solomon famous for? Apart from having a lot of wives and a lot of money and an awful lot of horses. He built the temple. When did he inaugurate the temple? What? In other words, he, the celebrations began a little before Sukkot. They went on through Sukkot. And on Shmini Atzeret, he gave people the chance to go back. Right? Have a look. Here it is. Source 14. Az. What's that word? Yakel Shlomo. This is Kings 1, Chapter 8. That's chapter which tells... The story of King Solomon consecrating the temple. Then Shlomo assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the princes of Dibir, etc., etc. Vayikalu Melech Shlomo Kol Yisrael Be'yerach Ha'etanim Bechag Hu HaChodesh HaShvi'i On the festival of the seventh month and the festival, the thing called Chag in the seventh month is Sukkot. If you have a look, do you know how the Torah signifies a key word? It repeats it. How many times? Well, how many times does the word good appear in the first chapter of Bereshit? Well, how many days have we got here? Seven. 
If you see a sevenfold repetition of a word, you know it's significant. When you go back home, have a look at 1 Kings chapter 8, and you will see it has the root kahal vayakel seven times. So we've got another connection with Sukkot, and indeed with Jerusalem. Yeah? Now, there's a parasha which has that word as well, isn't there? Which parasha is it? Vayakel, right? There it is, source 15. Vayakel Moshe et koladat b'nei Israel What does he do in Vayakel? Tells them to build a Mishkan. Tell me, when did they start building the Mishkan? Anyone remember when Vayakel is told? The day after Yom Kippur. And you will see that they gave the gifts for it for two days, right? So count that. 11th of Tishri, two days for the bringing of gifts, 12 and 13. When did they start building? Erev Sukkot. Yeah? So we have three connections between the word kahal, kohelet, and Sukkot. Now this is extraordinary. Which is the earliest connection between a festival and a Megillah? Well, which Megillah is referred to in the Mishnah and Talmudic tractate called Megillah? Purim, right? Purim, because we wouldn't have a Purim without Megillah d'Esther. So, the earliest is probably Esther and, uh, and Purim. Undoubtedly, there is an ancient connection between Eicha and Tishubah. Eicha is clearly written for a moment of lamenting. So the connection historically between Kohelet and Sukkot is probably no earlier than the period of the Goonim, 7th, 8th, 9th centuries. And yet, already when Kohelet was written, the author of Kohelet included a code word right at the beginning that points us to three texts, all of which have to do with Sukkot. Are you with me so far? Here is the key to the mystery. What Kohelet is telling us is that Sukkot is a commentary on Kohelet, and Kohelet is a commentary on Sukkot. As soon as you understand that, then you are going to see things you never saw before. Okay? We are, go we, we are seeing this extraordinary thing that Chazal recognized, they call it sometimes in halachic context, nowadays the posh word is intertextuality. There it is, a beautiful piece of intertextuality in three different ways. Kohelet is referring to Sukkot. And that is the end of the first part of the journey. This is a three-part journey. Okay? Part two. What is the theme of Kohelet? Well, let me ask you, what is the key word of Kohelet? What? Hevel, right? I mean, you can hardly miss it. In line two, how many times does it appear? You see it in source nine, count them up. How many times? Five times, right? Havel, Havalim, Amar Kehelet, Havel, Havalim, Hakol, Havel. Five times. It appears 38 times in this tiny little book on its own. 
right? So now tell me, what does Hevel mean? Vanity. Do we have any advance on vanity? What? What? No, no. Hevel. Hevel with a hey. I'll tell you what the translations translated as meaningless, empty, pointless, vanity, uh, purposeless, futile, right? All of which are wrong. You will see in the green siddur. Sorry, I have to tell you a little story here. Does any of you remember there was a year, it must be eight years ago, when they put on this huge exhibition in New York. They had cows everywhere, wooden cows. Were you, any of you in New York when, when they had these wooden statues of cows everywhere? Yeah? Well, do, have you, do you remember this years and years ago? The day Elaine and I, the day I was inducted into the House of Lords, We brought along a sandwich lunch before the induction. And where do you go to eat a sandwich in the House of Lords? It was a little garden that belonged to Black Rod. It's just, you know, on the Thames, a little private garden. So we go in the garden and have a, a little sandwich, a Mazzone sandwich in the garden of the House of Lords. And lo and behold, what do we see? We see one of these New York cows wearing... Uh, um, in robes, the robes of a member of the House of Lords. I said to Elaine, I have just heard Hashem whisper to me, The preeminence of man over the beast is nothing because all is vanity, okay? So I was put in my place, you know, think you're important to get, be in the House of Lords, Hashem reminds you, no, we're all just mortal, and etc., etc. So, uh, because that line appears very early on in our morning prayers, yeah, I had to translate it for the green sitter. And I had to give it the correct translation. And here is the correct translation. In Hebrew, and not only in Hebrew, in ancient Greek, and I'm sure in whatever language Hindus speak, actually, what language do Hindus speak? I don't know, whatever they speak. Anyway you will find that the words for soul in Judaism all have to do with breathing. Yeah? Nefesh, ruach, neshama, vayinafash, to breathe deeply. Ruach is a wind or a gust of air. Neshiman, linshom, to inhale. Yeah? So all the words for soul in Hebrew, and in Greek likewise, psyche and so on, these they all have to do with breathing, and in, in Hinduism, you know, in Zen Buddhism and so on, breathing is a very significant religious act. Hevel means a shallow breath. Or as I translated it in the Siddha back in 2005, a fleeting breath. And what Kohelis is saying is this. We may think that I'm the... Uh, Greatest king in the world, the richest man in the world. I built the temple. I've accumulated all this fame, this wisdom. In the end, we're all going to die. So what's it all mean? Hakol Havel means the whole of life is a mere breath. You can have everything. Lose breath, 
you're dead. That's finished. That's the end. Kohelet is the most sustained exploration of mortality in all of the literature. You want to read another one? It's good. It's not as good as Kohelet, but it's very good. Is to read Tolstoy's Confessions. Tolstoy was induced into the same existential despair as Kohelet. And read those Confessions and you will see. You remember that moment, that incredibly moving moment at the end of King Lear, when he suddenly discovered that Cordelia, whom he thought was, you know, the one who didn't like him, is the only one who really cared for him. And by the time he discovers it, she's dead. And he's holding her body. And he's saying, why should a dog, a horse, a rat have breath? and thou no breath at all. That is what Kohelet is saying. Everything we build up in our grandiose structures are nothing, because all we are is a mere fleeting breath. And we could die at any moment, and none of us will live forever. It is the most searching exploration of mortality known to me. Because we can accumulate huge wealth, but if we die, and we hand it on to our kids, who knows what they'll do with it? Is it good to give your kids wealth or not good? Who knows? If you have power and you die, who's going to take your place? Is he going to or she going to undo everything you fought for? You may have devoted your life to writing books after I die. Will anyone read them? Nothing has worth when we reckon the fact that we're not going to be here to see it. Now, I want to know what did Kohelet do in this personal existential crisis. And here I have to introduce a couple of names to you. Some of them, one or other, may be familiar to you. Sigmund Freud had a brilliant disciple, an Ilui. I mean, I think in some ways as bright as Sigmund Freud himself. He was far and away Freud's most brilliant disciple. He was called Otto Rank. Does the name mean anything to you? His original name was, you guessed it, Rosenberg. But he changed it to Rank. Otto Rank was obsessed with this concept that we, much of human life is driven by anxiety at the fact that we're going to die. There's another Jewish guy whose name is significant here, and his name was Ernest Becker. Ernest Becker wrote a book in 19, published in 1973 called The Denial of Death, which introduced Otto Rank's ideas to the American public. The book was published in 1973. He won the Pulitzer Prize for it, in 1974, and by the time he was awarded the prize, he was already dead. And he wrote this book, The Denial of Death. And what they both concluded is that fear of death leads people to do things that make them feel, I will live forever. One of those things is to accumulate great wealth and possessions. Another is to achieve great power. 
Another is to be very wise and write lots of books. Artistic creativity. All of this is a desire to leave something that will live on after you. The only trouble is that you won't be there to see it. And that is the theme of the opening two chapters of Kohelet. Right? You'll see them. Can you see it's source 16, but you'll have to turn over the page, right? That's what he says. I made for myself gardens and, and orchards. I made for myself pools of water, fountains. I acquired many servants. I accumulated... Well, think all of these things are classic syndromes that Otto Rank and Ernest Becker write about. They're all attempts to defeat death, right? And all of them fail. So right after all of this, he comes back. Havel, havelim, hakol havel. Now let me ask you a simple question. If Kohelet is all about death, who was the first human being to die? Who was the first human being to die? What? What? No. His number two son, in English, Abel, murdered by Cain. Right? What is the Hebrew for Abel? Hevel, that is the word, right? And who was he killed by? Cain. And what does Cain come from? Have a look, source 18, right? It's there in front of you, source 18. Adam knew Eve, his wife, that is knowing, as they say in the biblical sense, and she became pregnant, and she gave birth to Cain, Kaniti Ish I have acquired a child together with God. Kaniti, I have acquired. That's why she called him Cain. What did Solomon just say above there, source Zion? Kaniti, right? The word Kaniti only applies, appears six times in the whole of Tanakh, three of them in the book of Ruth. Okay? Kaniti. And now you understand the drama of Cain and Abel. Is this drama? You know, people say... Everyone knows Cain and Abel is a symbolic story. They were real, but they represented something conceptual. People say it's the old conflict between the farmer and the herdsman. But, in fact, Cain and Abel are a metaphysical drama on death, life, the fragility of life, and the attempt to defeat death by acquisition. And that is the drama that Solomon goes through. He attempts to defeat death by kaniti, by acquiring things, and realizes it's all in vain because those things will live on after me, but I won't. Right. Now, what is the halachic definition? Oh, sorry, what, in the, what is the solution King Solomon comes up with in Kohelet? He eventually finds an answer. Does anyone know what it is? Pardon? 
No, I mean, before the last verse. He gets there quite early on. Okay, I'm going to give you a clue. Tell me, the word simcha, right? Joy, the root samach, in some form or another. How many times does the word simcha appear in the book of Bereshit? Have a guess. One. How many times in the book of Shemot? Have a guess. One. How many times in the book of Vayikra? One. How many times in the book of Bamidbar? One. How many times in the book of Devarim? Twelve. Quite a lot. Okay. Uh, we had some of them. Yes. And Kitavo, right? Uh, sorry, how many does that make up? I'm, I've, I've lost count here. 16. How many times do you think the word simcha appears in Kohelet? 17. The book we think is the most miserable of the lot has more simcha in it than all five books of the Torah together. And that is the answer. And I have to tell you something. What is the Hebrew for happiness? Come on, it's the first word of the book of the Psalms. Ashrei. Ashrei, right? Ashrei Amshrei Kachalo. Ashrei Yushvevetecha. Ashrei. Judaism is interested in happiness. It loves it. But what Judaism really cares about is Simcha. What's the difference between happiness and joy? We have a wonderful philosopher in our midst, and I would say happiness is something philosophers aspire to, at least if they're Aristotle, eudaimonia, okay? Happiness involves a life taken as a whole. Solon said, call no man happy until he's dead. In other words, he didn't mean you suddenly cheer up when you die. He meant judge a person by the whole of their life. Is simcha about a lifetime? No, simcha is about now. Simcha lives in the moment. And that is why you can feel Simcha, even in the midst of terrible, bad things happening. You ever been to an Israeli wedding when bad things are happening? I have to tell you, we were there during the Gulf War. We were there in 2002 when all the suicide bombings took place. You go to an Israeli wedding, punk then! You will see the most magnificent Simcha. Because Simcha is not stepping back and saying, am I happy with life as a whole? Simcha lives in the moment. And that is why Simcha is William Blake saying, to hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Or what some rather best-selling Buddhist writer calls the power of now. That is what Simcha is about. And so... Solomon finally realized, I'm not going to defeat death by accumulating lots of property and wealth and wisdom and writing books, because that's life as a whole and we never live to see all of this. But I can defeat death by simcha, by rejoicing in the wife that I love, he says, by enjoying today and not worrying about tomorrow. Eat and drink because tomorrow we die. Live in the moment, he says, and have simcha. And that is how Kohelet finally conquered his obsession with death. He learned to rejoice. Don't worry about tomorrow. Just thank God for now. And that is what he did. Now, what is the halachic definition of a sukkah? Somebody must know this. What is it? 
the halachic definition of a sukkah. It is a dirat aronim. It's a temporary dwelling, right? What obsesses King Solomon about the human body? It's a temporary dwelling. That is what obsesses him. It's not permanent. A, a human life is like a sukkah. It's not like a palace made of stone. It's a temporary dwelling. And what allows us to overcome our anxiety and insecurity, the fact that all we have is a temporary dwelling? Simcha. That is why Sukkot is Zman Simchate. And that is what Kohelet is telling us about Sukkot. Okay? And that, I think, is the end of part two. Sukkot is about knowing that life is insecure. You know, we had a whole bunch of people who said, you can securitize risk. You remember that one? Subprime mortgages, all that stuff. You saw the big short. You know what I'm talking about. The truth is you can't securitize risk. Life is a risk. And it is hazardous. And that robs you of all the joy because you can never know. Am I going to be here tomorrow? Pa, pa, pa. How do you deal with that? The answer is, V'samachta b'chagecha v'ayitach samach. You sit in a rackety old building, open to the wind, the rain, the cold, and the storm, and you rejoice. That is how you solve Solomon's problem, and that is what Sukkot is all about. And that, I think, is the end of the second part of the journey. Now, I want to ask you a simple question. King Solomon built the temple. Was that a good thing or not a good thing? Well, it must have been a good thing. It was the greatest thing ever, right? Were there some downsides to it? Were there some downsides to building the temple? Okay, have a look at source 19, right? Here you are. The beginning of the story of the building of the temple, 1 Kings chapter 5. Can you see what it says? King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month. So they spent one month in Lebanon, two months at home. Solomon had 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hills, as well as 3,300 foremen who supervised. How many people did he have building the temple? Can you do your arithmetic? A lot, exactly so. Precisely so, 183,000 and some. Okay? Does that remind you of anything? When was the last time you heard about the Israelites being turned into a labor force? Correct? Hang on, we were supposed to leave Egypt, right? Solomon seems to have taken the people back into slavery. Now, have a look here at source 20, right? Can you see that? All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But the people of Israel, Solomon, made no slaves. Can you read that? The Torah has to tell us King Solomon didn't make the Israelites slaves. 
That's quite striking, I think, is it not? Tell me, how long did it take? How long does it take to build a house in Hampstead Gardens? How long did it take Solomon to build the temple? Anyone know? Have a look. Source 21. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, and in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts. According to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. It took him seven years to build the temple, okay? Now look at the very next verse in Tanakh. Can you see it? Solomon was building his own house 13 years. Is that telling you something? He spent almost twice as long building his own palace as he spent building a house for God. So the temple was a wonderful, wonderful thing, the greatest thing ever, but it practically reduced the whole of the Israelites to slavery. So that the Torah has to tell us, well, he didn't actually make them into slaves because at the end of seven years they could go free. And he spent twice as long building a house for himself as he spent building a house for God. That is a bit of a critique here, right? Now do you remember what God said to David when David said, I've got to build a temple for God. Anyone know what God said? Have a look. Source 23, I've given it to you in the Hebrew and the English. We'll read it. In the English, Solomon says to the prophet, Natan, I want to build a house for God. Natan says, that's a great idea, go ahead and do it. But then we read, but that night the word of the Lord came to Natan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Egypt to this day, I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places I've moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word about any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? I don't want a house. I'm happy with a tent. So we see that there is an undercurrent here. It's not the primary meaning. The Beit HaMikdash was the holiest thing ever. But there's an undercurrent here. That God didn't want this kind of palace. That it would turn the Israelites into a corvée, a nation of slave laborers. That it would be like every other nation and every other nation in the ancient world, the modern world, and everything in between. You want to announce I'm great? You build monumental buildings. Everyone did it. Every single nation there ever was. And God is saying to David, you think I'm like that? Did I ever ask for such a thing? I was happy with a tent. What was the name of that tent, by the way? It's called the Mishkan. Incidentally, how does English, how do English Bibles translate the word Mishkan? Anyone know? Tabernacle. That remind you of something? Are you with me? So, as house is to sukkah, so mikdash is to mishkan, as temple is to tabernacle. Right? Now, I asked you a simple question. Who lived in a sukkah in the Torah? The Israelites never. But what is the root of the word sukkah? Anyone know? What do we call the roof of a sukkah? Schach. The root of sukkah is schach. 
Does that word appear anywhere in the Torah? The answer is yes, it appears twice. In which context? Anyone know? In the Mishkan, right? There it is. Source 24. Vahiyu hakruvim, the cherubs, above the Aaron, right? The cherubs, porsei lamala, they spread their hands over them, sochachim bekanfehem al They were overshadowing, they were protecting, they were shadowing the kaporet. Uvnehem ish el achiv, el kaporet. And they were fa- the cherubs were facing one another, right? So um, the only, and that is in Parshas Truma, in which we have the command to build the Mishkan, and the same sentence appears, the same words appear in Parshas Vayakel when they actually made the Sukkah. The only context in which Schach appears in the Torah is in relation to the Mishkan. There is a place where. I'm not sure if it's the temple. I'm not sure if it's the temple. None of the commentators are sure in the temple. But does anyone know what harachamon we say in benching on Cholamoid Sukkot? Yakim Lanuet Sukkot David Hanofalat, right? You will see that that is a quote from Amos in source 26. Can you see it? I will restore the sukkah of David that has fallen down. And remember what God said to David. I prefer living in a tent than a palace, than a house of cedar. Now I'm going to ask you a very simple question. Which of the patriarchs lived in a house? Did Abraham live in a house? No, he lived in a tent. Did Isaac live in a house? No, he lived in a tent. You know who lived in houses? Have a look. Source 27. Bereshit 19, you remember? Two angels come to Lot in Sidom. Lot lives in a house. Abraham lives in a tent. You know who else lives in a tent, in a house? Look at source 28. Vayome. But me at Hagidi Nali, Hayesh, Beit Avicha Makom Lanu Lalun, Abraham's servant, gone to find a, a wife for, for Isaac. Who lives in a house? Lavan. Okay, Lavan lives in a house. Lot lives in a house. Is that a good advertisement for a house? Not really. Okay, Abraham lives in a tent. Isaac lives in a tent. Who is the first patriarch who builds a house? Here is the verse. Can you see it? Source 29. Now listen, this has to be one of the strangest verses in the whole of the Torah. Listen carefully. Can you see it? Source 29. And Jacob traveled to Sukkot. And he made for himself a house, the first patriarch to make for himself a house. But for his cattle, he made Sukkot. And he is about to celebrate the fact that he's the first patriarch to build a house. What do you think he's going to call the place? Beit something or other, right? Beit El, Beit Lechem, you name it. What does he call the place? 
Al Kain Karar Shemamakom Sukkot. There you are. You just bought a house in Hampstead Garden suburb and you name it after your garage. I mean, have you ever seen anything more extraordinary? And what is Jacob telling us for all time? Jews don't have to live in houses to feel secure. I'm happy to live in Sukkot. My animals live in Sukkot. I'm happy to live there. What does God say in Parshish Baha? When you come to the land, the land, you will never own it in perpetuity. Why? You are mere strangers and temporary residents, as far as I'm concerned. In other words, even though you live safely in the land of Israel, never forget where you came from. Never so settled down that you become complacent. So that your heart is upraised and you forget where you came from and who you owe this to. Never forget in the immortal words of the Beatles' last recording, Get back to where you once belonged. So just as, even in Israel, they were supposed to remember the 40 years wandering in the desert, now you begin to see this extraordinary thing that just as, even though they are worshipping in the temple Solomon built, don't forget how you first once had God living in your midst in a sukkah called the Mishkan, called the tabernacle. You do not need great buildings of cedar and stone to find God. You can live in a little Mishkan, a porter cabin, courtesy of Ikea, I have to tell you, and still God will be there. If, of course, you're like the Kruvim, whose face was Ishrael Re'ehu. You turn face to face to your human being, that is where the Shekhinah lives. You remember where the Keruvim were facing in Solomon's temple? They were not facing one another. They were facing Penehem El They were facing the house. They weren't looking at each other. The Gemara in Baba Batra, Daf Tzaditez, Ahmed Aleph, says, when Israel do the will of God, the cherubs face each other. When they don't do the will of God, they face the bite. That is an extraordinary Gemara. It's telling us that the Mishkan was closer to what Hashem wanted than Solomon's temple. And what Sukkot is telling us is Sukkot is when the Israelites went to the temple and celebrated the produce of the fields and they thanked HaKadosh Baruch but they never forget, forgot when they came from. Because every time a nation forgets its youth, its childhood, the hard times they had when they were struggling to make it go, they become decadent and they eventually decline and fall. But Jews never are allowed to do that. Because it's enough that you're Gerim and Toshavim, that you're temporary residents and you're always asking me for another year of life. And it's enough. Don't think you've got a great big temple. I'm as good as the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians. I tell you, I'm good enough with a Mishkan. 
Because that is the sukkah, that's the schach. That memory of the mishkan is good enough for me. And we now understand exactly the argument with which I began, which is Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Eliezer. What is a sukkah? Rabbi Akiva is right. A sukkah was a sukkah mamash. Not a hut the Israelites lived in, but the Mishkan, the portable temporary dwelling that God dwelled in. And Rabbi Eliezer was, uh, Rabbi Eliezer was right when he said Ananei Kavod, because where was, were the Ananei Kavod? Do you think they covered the people? If you look in the Torah, you will see they covered the Mishkan. As long as they were in camp, the cloud was over the Mishkan. When it moved beyond the Mishkan, they knew it was time to travel on. The Mishkan was a temporary dwelling. But the odd thing is that the temple was a permanent dwelling, and yet it was destroyed twice, and we don't have it anymore. But the Mishkan, which could move anywhere because God is everywhere, became the symbol of the shul that you can build in Jerusalem, but also, not bad, in Hampstead Garden Suburb. That became the permanent symbol. The temporary became permanent, and the permanent turned out only to be temporary. When I brought them out of Israel, Egypt, it wasn't the Israelites who lived in a sukkah, it was God who lived in a sukkah. And the sukkah is telling us something absolutely unbelievable that you don't need to have mega bucks to buy a home for God. All you need is a garden shed and a bit of faith. And you have your schach, and they overshadow you the way the cherubs overshadowed the ark. And between the Keruvim is the clouds of glory. The simplest, poorest Jew who turns his face to his brother or sister and builds a little sukkah is bathed in clouds of glory. And he has built his own private equivalent of the Mishkan. I hope we have seen in this little journey through the sources aspects of Sukkot and Kohelet that we never saw before. But the basic moral is very profound. That even though the world sometimes seems very dark and full of danger, and even though we all worry, how is my health going to be? Is God going to write me in the book of life? How long do I have left? Sukkot says, no, you can experience eternity in a moment. All you have to do is celebrate. Basimcha. And number two, you do not need a magnificent building to invite guests to. All you do is build a shed, and you'll have the Yushbizin, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob themselves personally visiting you, trying to taste your uh, honey cake. And one way or another, all you need to do is to love one another and turn our faces to one another and have enough faith in God. This temporary life and this temporary dwelling become filled with the clouds of glory. So may it be for all of us. May Hashem bathe us in the clouds of His glory and write us in the book of life. Thank you.